0: I'm Warren Smith, and thanks for joining me for the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's Ministry Watch Extra podcast, a special presentation of my conversation with Kay Warren. It was one year ago this week that Kay Warren spoke about both her own sexual abuse and the death of her son by suicide at the Caring Well Conference hosted by the Southern Baptist Convention in Dallas, Texas. I was at that conference and recorded the conversation that you're about to hear with Kay Warren, but little did I know then that the issues we discuss would become even more pressing in the year ahead. Here at Ministry Watch, we've had to report on the suicide of at least two high-profile pastors and the mental health concerns of many others, concerns that have been exacerbated by the COVID crisis. Plus, the sexual abuse crisis has not abated. This Caring Well conference was supposed to be a turning point in the way the church deals with sexual abuse, and maybe it was. But it hasn't stopped stories from hitting the news, stories that in the past year alone have involved more scandals in the Southern Baptist Church, plus Prominent organizations such as Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, Wheaton College, Cedarville University, and Mercy Corps. It's important to note that the organizations I just named are not fringe groups. They are organizations that are at the very heart of the evangelical culture. To pretend that this is someone else's problem, such as the Boy Scouts or the Catholic Church, is a position that is no longer Tenable. And all of this is why my conversation with Kay Warren is more relevant than ever today. Kay Warren is the co founder of Saddleback Church with her husband, Rick Warren. She's a speaker, a best selling author, and a Bible teacher in her own right. She is perhaps best known as an advocate for those living with mental illness and HIV AIDS. Following the death of her son, Matthew, by suicide in 2013, Kay became an advocate for suicide prevention. And she serves on the board of the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. I had this conversation with Kay Warren, again at the Caring Well Conference that took place one year ago this week in Dallas, Texas. Okay, first of all, welcome to the program. I've known your husband for a number of years. It's great to finally meet you face-to-face. Thank he, he, you. he always uh, says great things about you whenever he is at events that I'm at with him. So to, he better. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Uh, so um, I, I, the first question that I have for you is just really basic. Why are you here? What are you telling this group?
1: Hmm. Well, I am telling this group uh, a story that happened a very long time ago, but has had... Um, Uh, long-term implications in my life. And uh, so while the abuse was almost 60 years ago, which is hard to believe when I put a number on it, um, it has affected me my whole life. And so to be able to be in a place where there are other survivors, to be in a place where our stories are welcomed and honored, where we don't have to defend them or justify ourselves to anybody, but we can just say, look, this is what happened to me. This is how it affected me. And um, here's where I found God. Here's where I found hope and help. Here's where I'm still struggling. That's powerful. I want to be a part of that.
0: Would you mind sharing a little bit of that story here with our listeners as well?
1: Yeah. Um, when I was um, about six years old, my I was... Um, My dad was a Southern Baptist pastor in San Diego, and uh, I don't remember the exact how it happened, meaning I don't know what were the circumstances that got me to the back of the sanctuary that particular day, but somehow I was in the back of the sanctuary with the um, about 14, 15-year-old son of our church janitor, and my memory really is just the the clarity of being molested uh, by someone that I knew. And someone that I had seen, it was a small church, so I knew him and I was comfortable with him, but how I got there on that day, I don't know. But, um, and I don't remember how I got out of there, where I went from there. I know I didn't tell anybody. I had enough awareness to know that it was, what happened was bad and it was wrong and, um... And I didn't have language for it, and I didn't know how to say anything about it to my parents. And as best as I can piece it together, uh, that I buried it in my head uh, pretty quickly. I don't remember thinking about it again. I don't remember it being a conscious um, thought. I don't remember reliving it. It was just it was gone. But. Really, from that point on um I developed a pretty insatiable curiosity about sex and I have to tell you that the family I grew up in was a very sexually i'm laughing because it's not funny, but now, at this point, thinking of the way that like my mother couldn't even say the word sex," it came out as about a sixteen syllable word sex, and she'd finally get the word out. Very sexually repressed household, and um, anything about our bodies was shameful, and there was no, I mean, you were always completely covered up, um, and I was an only child till I was eight, so, you know, it was just me, my mom, and my dad, but anyway, very sexually repressed household. There was not a lot of openness about bodies and sharing, and so I think that what I've learned since then, that it's not just what happens, it's not merely what happens to us, it's the milieu in which it happens the context, the family. And so in my particular family, I somehow knew that it was not going to be a good thing for me to share, buried it, but I became very, very curious and, but alternately repelled at the same time. It was like looking at a lizard. It's the way I feel about looking at a lizard. I was attracted because it was interesting, but also repelled. And
0: let me, let me just pause you and and just make a couple of, Thought, a couple of thoughts come to my mind. Is Number one is that while your story is your story and it's completely unique, and I don't mean to uh, diminish that in any way, shape, or form, it shares at least a few characteristics in common with many, many other women's stories as well, that they're abused by someone older than them. They're abused by someone that they know. Um, they're often abused uh, in, a, in an environment in which they um, – don't know, they don't have the language to talk about it, and they certainly don't have the language to talk about it with the people that they need to talk about it with. Um, A lot of women can probably relate to your story.
1: They can, unfortunately. Um, thousands, if not millions of women can identify with at least parts of that story. And then, you know, from there, it just became, I hit my teenage years. I, I um, stumbled upon pornography in a house where I was babysitting and that curiosity that I had um, drew me to, I mean, the people left it out on their coffee table, same way that my my father left his counseling books, marriage counseling books. I mean, the Masters and Johnsons study w- Book, you know, their study was in a book, and it was in our living room, in in our bookshelf. And it's only as an adult that I've looked at that and thought, why did my dad leave that in our living room? I, I don't know, but. So I stumbled on that. I I read his counseling books because I was fascinated. I had stumbled accidentally upon pornography. but um, And and the pornography of of the 1960s that I had access to, very different than the pornography people have access to today. So it was a different world. I didn't have it easily available to me. But nevertheless, there was the attraction, the pull, then the the shame and the guilt of, no, I'm a good girl. I love Jesus. I want to be a missionary. How can this have anything to do with my life? So there was... sexual experimentation. And I, in essence, separated um, myself. I I was disassociated from myself. There was a part of me that was the good girl. And then there was a part of me of which I was so ashamed. And I did not know how to put those two people together. And then when in college, I met Rick and um, the good girl was who I wanted to be. And that's who he, Rick, Um, saw me as, and and I told him, I had this moment in a sociology class in which there was just this, I don't know what triggered it, but suddenly the memory of abuse, this decade-long-ago abuse that I had experienced and had been buried to my conscious mind, came back to my conscious mind, and I didn't know what to do with it. Again, who do you talk to? What do you say? I, I felt no emotion. I told Rick about it. He saw that I didn't have any emotion, and so we both just kind of figured in our ignorance, Ah, a terrible thing, but it's in the past. It happened a long time ago. This won't have any effect on She's us. She's over it. Yeah, or, or just, uh, it won't affect us. It won't affect us. And what we didn't know is, of course, that it would affect us dramatically and um, became just uh, a part of our lives that was so difficult to, um, sex was impossible. Um, and then we argued about sex and then neither of us knew. And we just kept saying, what's wrong with you? Not, not, it never occurred to me that it had anything to do with the abuse. So how
0: did you discover that? How did you how did it become clearer to you that that was the root of the problem and uh, you begin to face it.
1: Yeah, I, just over years, I think, just over years, trying to read, you know, pray, ask God for healing, read books, read marriage books, went to marriage counseling, and it became clear that that was part of an issue for us, or at least that was part of the root. But I couldn't talk about it. I I couldn't talk about it. I could talk about it in the sense of I have a problem. And, and and this is not working for me, and this is not comfortable, and, and I don't know what to do. So I could talk about it at that level. And at that point, there had been enough um, relational trust buildup in, in our relationship where I knew that Rick genuinely loved me, and I loved him. And so um, after a few years, I got pregnant uh, with our first child, then our second, and then later on our third, but all along, there was just this undercurrent that, that even as we grew this church and grew our family and and loved God and loved each other and were doing everything that we, you know, really had a good life in that sense. But there was just this part of our relationship that was mm, not quite right. And at about, when we were 40, right before we turned 40, Rick um, said to me one day, I I love you with all of my heart and I am committed to you. I, I adore you. I don't know what to do here. I'm so... I've just—I don't know what else to do. I'm going to go to marriage counseling specifically for this, and I'm going to go to a Christian sex therapist, and I hope you will go with me. But I—you know—you may not. And what would happen, you know, over those years was not only I could talk to it at a certain level, but then it felt like there was an abyss that opened up in front of me. And and the now I know that was trauma. And that the, the thought in my head was I'm going to get—I'm going to fall into the abyss into the abyss or it was the sense of like there's a a a black hole up in space and i'm going to get there and i'm going to be absorbed into that black hole and i'm going to cease to exist or i'm going to lose my mind and i will lose it so badly i will never recover um so there was a terror and a dread of of really exploring the damage and what had happened so we went we went but i'm telling you it was one of the hardest things i've ever done
0: Today's Ministry Watch Extra podcast is my 2019 conversation with Kay Warren. Kay Warren is the wife of Pastor Rick Warren, and her most recent book is Sacred Privilege, Your Life and Ministry as a Pastor's Wife. I'm
2: Warren Smith, and we'll have more with Kay Warren after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a Stork Bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork Buses partner college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com.
0: Welcome back. I'm Warren Smith, and today's Ministry Watch Extra podcast features my interview with Kay Warren. About sexual abuse, depression, suicide, and hope. Let's get right back to that conversation. So, Kay, you and Rick uh, ended up going to counseling. You were about 40 years old. Um, And uh, you, you talked about staring into an abyss. And I know one of the topics that you've been passionate about the last few years, one of the topics that you're talking about here is the relationship between mental health and sexual abuse. Were those some of the issues that started coming out in counseling?
1: Yeah, but you know it didn't come quickly because uh, that that abyss didn't suddenly turn into you know a park it it was it was hellish it was terrible I, I thought I was gonna uh, lose my mind every single time that you know we'd go to counseling and did we did about six months of very intensive counseling which turned into years
0: Well when you say six months of very you know once a week twice a week once a uh, month
1: two to three sessions of two to three double sessions a week for a while uh, because it was just so intense.
0: Did anyone else other than you and Rick and your counselor know what was going on? Were, were, did, I mean, was did the church intervene and say, no, you guys need to get some counseling? Did friends intervene? Or was this just something that y'all were dealing with yourselves?
1: It, no, we were dealing with it ourselves. We did tell um, a few people that, um, I mean, I had talked to people. I'd been open about the fact that I'd been abused, but there was just a certain level you know that I would go, and there weren't many details, so it wasn't a secret by that time that I had experienced abuse, but I just didn't really talk about it. So, what we said was, um, there is um, this that's come to the place that Kay really, in particular, Kay and Rick, really feel like that this is something they need to focus on. There's some healing that needs to happen, so we didn't make an announcement to the church, but there were you know quite a few people close to us who knew so wasn't a secret.
0: Yeah. So keep talking, walk us through what. happening. Um, Yeah.
1: It it just took such a long time to really understand that what had happened to me um, was not my fault. Saying those words, even after all this time, sometimes saying the words, it's not your fault, is so powerful, because I think we we tell ourselves that really it was our fault in some way. If I hadn't been a cute little girl, if I hadn't attracted this guy's attention in some way, how I did that, I don't know. But I know some women feel um, incredibly responsible for uh, the abuse that they've, they've endured. And to have somebody say to you, no, it wasn't your fault. Um, what was done was evil and um, and you don't bear responsibility for that. that that's a message that takes a really long time to penetrate into our soul um, and and bring the healing. So that one took a long time um, to to also then move from that to know what was done was evil. That's another level because then you have to grapple with, the reality of evil and it's not out there and it's not in the news. No, the evil was done to me. And that is a stark reality to begin to accept. And then to, um, know that even some of the ways that some of the choices that I made are they they were acting out they weren't even they weren't even when we use the word choice um yeah there was there's some there was some volition to it but those choices were really shaped by were
0: consequences. they were
1: consequences of of evil that had been done to me and I didn't have the cognitive ability as a you know 12 13 14 15 year old girl to to know all of that and um and then grieving Grieving the losses, grieving the loss of innocence, grieving the loss of, of sexuality that's not tainted by evil, grieving the loss of, um, my own view of, of myself, grieving the loss um, in in marriage of you know we we really believe we were taught and we believed fully that uh, if we saved ourselves. Saved ourselves from marriage, that sex was going to be mind-blowing. And, you know, the bells would ring and heaven would come down. And it, it there was just this promise. And and we were virgins when we got married. And it didn't happen that way. And so grieving, even the loss of what we thought um, was a normative Christian experience and a normative marriage experience. And th- so there's just so much grief. And that takes time. To process, to feel, to recover, to heal.
0: Well, uh, talk about that time and, and how much time it took. Because as you said, you've got three kids at this point. You're you now in your early forties. So you've you know this church that you guys you know started in your living room has just you know kind of blown up. Um, a lot of things, a lot of moving parts around you. Are, are you are you? How is it affecting everything else that's going on in your life?
1: I took time off from ministry. I was a very active full time volunteer. At Saddleback, taught Bible study, taught our systematic theology class with one of our pastors. We wrote that and taught that together, and I just found I couldn't do, I couldn't put the focus on healing and continuing with life as it was. So I took six months um, from all of those responsibilities, really focused on healing. Rick took extra time off. He went with me on most of my appointments, and we were driving 60 miles one way. It wasn't like it was, you know, five minutes away. Uh,
0: Can I ask you why? Uh, did you not feel safe to do it closer to home, or was there—I mean, am I reading too much into that?
1: Well, two things. There, I probably wouldn't have gone to just anybody close by because our lives are in the fishbowl as it is. But the person that we saw is a Christian sex therapist, and there aren't that many of those. And particularly, um, you know, um, 1992, 93 that long ago— There weren't that many, and uh, I don't mind telling their names, Cliff and Joyce Pinner were just um, like the pinnacle on the West Coast, for, for sure, of Christian sex therapists, and we just felt like we wanted the best. And they were the best.
0: Well, that, that, that's great to hear that there was actually that resource, even sixty miles away, that there was any resource available, which causes me, Kay. Before we kind of go back into your story, just to ask this: uh, during that era, uh, you know, one of the th- one of the one of the reasons this conference is happening is that uh, how can the church do better? How can the church be the safe place? How can the church facilitate healing and be a place where victims and survivors can tell their stories? And I guess I want to ask you during that period of time: how was the church for you? Was the church there for you? Um, uh, did you want the church there for you? Did you want to push it away? Talk a little about that.
1: Our particular church was there for us, but we have an extraordinary church, just like they were there for us when Matthew died by suicide. um, I mean, our church has just stepped up for us, but I recognize that that's an anomaly. Our church is an anomaly in many ways. I just have to listen to the stories of other people um, to know that that's true, but our particular church was there for us in every way that they knew how to be for us. We weren't telling, like I said, everybody a lot of details, but in what they did know, they were very supportive.
0: So the church was there. You were getting some help. You and Rick, um, you know, kind of stepped back at least a little bit from ministry for six months to make space for that um, time. Um, what happened next? Um, I mean, uh, my experience, and you correct me if this is if I'm wrong about this, but there's never really a moment. Oh, okay, I, I wasn't here. You, know, you, you don't get the cast off of your leg, and all of a sudden you're, you know, the leg's not broken anymore.
1: Oh, how I wish. That were true. Uh, How I wish there was, uh, you know, an expiration date on on recovering from sexual abuse, but there isn't. I mean, there are a few people you'll hear their stories, and and it makes it sound like you know, not I don't mean it sounds like I believe them, but they'll say, "I prayed, God did this, I was healed, and I have to accept that to be true." That isn't just normative. That isn't the way it happens for most of us. Most of us go through a very long. A drawn out process of gradual steps, incremental healing. You you grow, and then you run into another barrier or piece of trauma or reaction, and then you grow through that piece. And so it's it's really a start stop start stop process, and that is normal. That is very normal, and that's what happened. It's taken. I mean, that was almost twenty five years ago um, when I first started going, and um, we went for several years regularly. And I'm grateful that we had the financial ability to do that. I also know that many people just simply don't have the financial ability to do that, and they have to find other ways. Um, but then, after Matthew died by suicide, what I discovered was the traumatic nature of his death actually reopened other trauma experiences in in me that I had been quiet, you know. And what I've learned in that is that trauma that is just the nature of trauma. It waxes and wanes, like grief. It waxes and it wanes. And you might think, oh, I've already already been down that road. I'm kind of maybe through that part. And then something happens, something stirs a thought or a memory, and man, you're back on, on your face again. And I guess, again, that's normal.
0: You're listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Today, we're featuring my 2019 conversation with Kay Warren on the one-year anniversary of the Southern Baptist Convention's Caring Well Conference, a conference on sexual abuse at which Kay Warren was a keynote speaker. Kay's written for Christianity Today and the Washington Post, and she's been featured in Newsweek, Reader's Digest, Guidepost, and other publications. I'm Warren Smith, and we'll have a few final
2: thoughts from Kay Warren after this short break. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast, and today's episode features my 2019 interview with Kay Warren. Kay Warren is the wife of Pastor Rick Warren, and together they're the parents of three children and the grandparents of five. Let's get right back to our conversation. Well, um... I ask obnoxious questions for a living, Kate. So okay. if this is obnoxious and too obnoxious... I'll tell you if you feel are. ...feel free to not answer. But I, since you brought Matthew up, I, I interviewed Rick right, maybe six months or a year after uh, Matthew's death, and um, he talked, at least in part, of a long challenge, many years of mental health issues that y'all dealt with with Matthew, and uh, this is where the question gets obnoxious. Is there any relationship between what you were going through and what Rick was going through and maybe some of the trauma... that that Matthew was going through. Was there a was there a family dynamic at work here that was? Um...
1: That's not really a that's not an obnoxious question. Um, I I think it's a legitimate question, and I'd have to say, not that I'm aware of. Um, he was seven when he first experienced um, clinical depression, and um, he he was. I knew he was different almost from the time he was born, and he probably could have been diagnosed earlier if we had known that children, I didn't know that children could have a mental illness. I didn't know. And, um, so we really feel like his mental illness started very, very young. So I'm not going to say that the family isn't affected by, you know, because there is a whole family dynamic, but I believe that, that his was more, um, biologic in, in nature and, um, rather than being a part of what was going on in our home,
0: but his mental health and his depression, and ultimately his death by suicide, did, as you say, open up some of those wounds again. And and that wasn't, I mean, uh, I don't know how you measure time, but um, doesn't it, it wasn't that long ago. And um, so once those wounds got reopened, how did you had to deal with that all over again, right?
1: Just in in different ways, because as I said, things had quieted down and. And the trauma of uh, there's I I don't know suicide and murder are two of the most traumatic events that can happen to an individual or a family. So um, his death by suicide was unlike anything that it, it made the the sexual abuse feel like a walk in the park in comparison. It just and that's just my particular experience. I would not say that for anyone else. That was my particular experience. Just the devastation. Of of his death by suicide was so um, traumatic and catastrophic, and so the um, I felt like his his loss ushered me into a giant room that like over the door catastrophic loss and I was thrust into that room not by my own choice and in that room there were some other doors. And and if I were to open one of those other doors in curiosity, it was like an overstuffed closet, and stuff would just fall out. And so within a very short space of time, I was dealing with all sorts of trauma from my past. And um, it's like the the uncom- incompletely grieved losses and um, trauma of sexual abuse um, had a room in that, had a closet in that room. And so... But there were other losses in my life. I mean, those aren't the only losses, but they were in that room. And so, yeah, trauma can um, affect other trauma, and they can kind of just stack on top of each other, and um, and it, and it it is so painful. I, uh, one of the other things I'm learning about the trauma that I experience now related, uh, brought on by Matthew's trauma and the reawakening of, of the other trauma is to realize that, like we were saying, it's it's not like there's a cast it's just going to come off my leg and I'm going to be okay. I have come to accept that parts of me, there are parts of my body, parts of my mind, parts of my soul that are not probably going to experience full healing here on earth. And... Um, I, it just causes me to long for heaven because I know that the healing that God wants to give me is coming, the complete, the total, the re- restoration, as, as Tolkien says, that all sad things become untrue. And that will be part of my experience when I see Jesus face-to-face, that the, the sadness that was caused here by the abuse, it will become untrue in, in the presence of Jesus. And that is probably the strongest hope I have.
0: Well, um, we long for that day for you and for all the rest of us, but until then, how you doing?
1: I am doing, I call it wonderful, terrible. There is so much in my life that is wonderful. I have a rich marriage. I have great kids. I love the work I do. I love my church. I love my friends. I have my material needs. Are ma- I mean, seriously, I I have a wonderful life. And um, at the same time, there is this terrible gaping hole where Matthew should be, and nothing and no one will replace it or fill it or make it better or take the tears from my eyes until I see him when Jesus comes for me. So again, I'm finding a level of acceptance of this is the way it's going to be, wonderful, terrible.
0: Well, Kay, um, we're here in Dallas for this event. Um, what do you want people to take away from at least your part of the presentations, the
1: i I was praying as as I was um getting ready to give that message and then giving it. I was praying for the women, particularly who were like me, um, you know, many years ago, who, as a young woman, as a young bride, felt like such a failure, um who felt like. What is wrong with me? Um, I'm not much of a woman. I'm not much of a Christian. Because if I were a Christian, I mean, I've prayed and I've asked God to heal me, and he hasn't healed me. So not only am I damaged goods, I'm not even a very good Christian. Um, And if I had heard other women talk about the length of time that it takes to get better, the fact that it's not an easy healing process, that it's it's start and stop, that there are parts of us that may not be fully healed until Jesus comes. It would have relieved so much of the guilt that I felt, and it would have made me feel like I wasn't alone. I, I didn't talk to anybody, so I felt like a freak. I felt I felt like I was the only one on the face of the earth who was living through the, the terrible time that we were in our marriage. And to have heard somebody else say— it's going to be okay and it's going to take time and we're with you and you're not alone and it's not your fault and um, there is help. I think it would have, oh I wish I had had somebody say that to me and so I wanted to be at least a part of that for other women and I've heard from several since I've been here who came up and said exactly that. I didn't know. Nobody ever talks about this part of the abuse story and I didn't know and I feel I'm not the only one. I'm not a freak. That's enough for me. That's good.
0: That brings to a close my conversation with Kay Warren. I had this conversation with Kay Warren at the Caring Well Conference hosted one year ago this week by the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. That conference took place in Dallas, Texas. Special thanks to Elizabeth Bristow for helping me to arrange this and other interviews at that event. Her assistance was indispensable. A quick program note before I go, you can find an edited transcript of this interview at the Ministry Watch website. Just go to ministrywatch.com and type Kay Warren's name into the search engine. I'd also like to remind you that there's a quick and easy, and I should add, free way to support this program, and that's simply to rate us on your podcast app. The more ratings we have, the better the podcast performs with search engines, you can also leave a comment when you give us a rating. I can't respond via the app, but please know that I read all the comments and I find them both encouraging and helpful. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosell and Steve Gandy. We get database and technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina, and you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. May God bless you.